Greetings, and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops, and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome back! Hi, everybody. It is episode 15 of My Favorite Flop, and we are back at you with even more fun stuff today. Isn't that right, Christina? Oh, yes. Today, I know we keep telling you guys we're going to break all the rules, and we kind of broke the rules last week. Today, we really throw them out the window. (laughs) So get ready, folks. But first, Bobby, what have you been listening to? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so today... We are covering some shows with an S uh, written by a very famous luminary figure. So I decided to go completely the other direction with what I listened to this week uh, and something that was very trashy. Uh, And so I listened to this week one of my favorite shows. Uh, It's something I saw several times when I was in New York City. Um, I was a big fan of the concept album that came out years before it opened in New York. Uh, And it actually is what convinced me to work for the Broadway producer, I work for because he produced the off-Broadway production of Silence, the musical, which is Uh. the parody of (laughs) Silence of the Lambs. So that one, I don't I don't know it well, but we had several friends who filtered it in and out of that. Oh, it is throughout the years. I remember the first time I discovered, so it started as like a viral internet, like concept album. Right. Um, And I can't list most of the song titles here, Um, but it is iconic lines from the movie. It is one of those, like you're taking the line from the movie and you're making it into the song. Like put the effing lotion in the basket is the name (laughs) of a song. Um, And I remember uh, bringing it to Michael Sarder. Uh, who was the head of the department at the musical theater college that we both attended and I worked at. Um, and he he loved that sort of thing. So he was of course v- he did. very obsessed. Uh, <laughs> and I remember, I remember like other staff members, I remember Day Sparing uh, being very obsessed with it. I remember Danny Gerwin being very obsessed with it. Like it, we had a moment. None of these people surprised me. No, we had a moment. <laughs> and then, but it was just this internet like album, you know? Mm. And um, then years later, I heard it was happening at Nymph. And I was like, oh, my. And I think that's right before I moved to New York. And then um, it was playing off-Broadway either right after I moved to New York or it would already started once I moved there. And uh, I, I saw it several times. I went the first time with our friend, Nicole Sorrow. Mm. Um, we laughed our butts off. Um, and I kept going back because I just could not believe what I was seeing on stage. <laughs> um, it starred the brilliant Jen Harris as Clarice. Um, David Garrison, who I adore, uh, was um, Hannibal Lecter when I saw it. Um, yeah, it was. It's, it's Silence of the Lambs, the musical, and it is <clears throat> everything you dream it should be. Anyway, Christina, what were you listening to this week? So I was inspired by our friend Damon Gravina. Mm. who created our flop tales. So if you haven't gone and tried one of our flop tales, please go check out our Instagram or Facebook where you can find the recipes and instructional videos. Damon's pretty brilliant. But 
one of the things that he brought to the table um, and one of the names of the drinks is a show called Flahooly. Flahooly. <laughs> and I, he kind of gave me a weird rundown of it, which you can also watch Christina's immediate reaction to on one of those videos. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I need to understand what this is and how it made it to Broadway and Barbara Cook starred in it and it was her Broadway debut. So, went and listened to it because it's on Spotify if you didn't know, friends. There you go. And I, <laughs> who knew? So, Christina went and listened to that and um, it was uh, real interesting. I, oh, wow. I mean, a doll named Flahooly, who I actually <laughs> read on because I was trying to like properly figure out what the plot was so I knew what I was listening to. So I went on Wikipedia and apparently the doll, instead of saying Flahooly originally, because it's all about McCarthyism, if you didn't know. Um, oh, yes. Because that makes sense with the name Flahooly. Um, but anyways, the doll was originally supposed to scream Red Scare or something like that. I okay. like lose its mind every time you pulled the string or whatever it is that makes it talk, right? And instead it turned into maniacal laughter and the doll's name was Flahooly is oh, how it ultimately man. ended up. And like there's a genie which comes out of nowhere. I mean, it is magical. There's actually some really interesting music in it, like the um, the introduction of, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, Ima Sumac, I think is how you pronounce her first name. Yeah? I think it's Ima Sumac, yeah. yeah. She's got a fascinating voice. You want to talk about someone with range? Yes. Good Lord. That woman's a contralto and a high soprano all at the same time, and I'm not quite sure how it functions. But oh, yeah. Go give that a listen. I mean, there's not really any words to it. It's a, it's a lot of chanting and like... Vocalizations. Vocalizations, tribal scatting is what I'm going to call it. Um, and it's fascinating. I mean, it's really fascinating music to listen to because it still tells a story even though there's no lyrics. Oh, yeah. And that, that I was really inspired by and found a lot of um, joy in it. You know, I don't know how appropriate it is in today's day and age, but I mean, for what it was, I, you know, I think that it was, I think it's a really interesting piece of history that people should know. But yeah, the show itself is a bit strange. <laughs> I mean, look, I am here for any musical that has puppets and Barbara Cook in it. So like, <laughs> to me, that's like winning the lottery. Well... <laughs> On that note, Christina, we should probably get into these clues. Um, yes. Because we have a big episode to cover today, and we have a lot we to do. talk about. All right. Uh, so I'm going to start us out. So we gave this at the end of the last episode. Combined, these three shows played 172 Broadway performances. Three. Like, let's pause for a second. All three of them. Last episode, we did two. This episode, we do three. This is probably when we're done recording this, that they were like, let's go back to doing one. Um, but <laughs> anyways, that was followed with our Twitter clue, which was one of these musicals was the first Broadway show to feature the Caribbean still drum in the orchestra pit, which I thought was super fascinating. Super fascinating. Um, on the Instagram, uh, a photo of Mary Tyler Moore throwing her hat in the air. 
Mitch, if you are a super flopaholic, that probably gives away one of them. But one of them uh, to continue uh, was followed by our blog post, which was posted on Facebook uh, that was titled Five Broadway Flops Plagued with Technical Issues. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, I feel like there should be more than five, but. Oh, there are. But OK, it's five, five good ones. <laughs> and now for your final clue. The author of the source material to all three of these musicals inspired a character in Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Ooh. Yes. All right. So should we tell them what all three of them are, Christina? Yes. Drum roll, please. (laughs) It is House of Flowers. Breakfast at Tiffany's. And and the... Grass harp. I love that we went real slow with that. <laughs> so, Christina, what do these three musicals have in common to the layman listening today? Well, they're all based on Truman Capote's work, and all three of them actually have also been turned into films. Oh, yeah. Like, so essentially, this episode is about three musicals, but it's really about the theatrical work of Truman Capote, yeah? Yeah. He's an interesting character. So instead of starting with plot synopses, we're going to start with some fun facts about Truman Capote. <laughs> I mean, okay, so Truman's got an interesting life story, right? Um, yeah. He grew up in Alabama uh, as a relatively poor kid. Um, and essentially, by the age of four, like abandoned by his parents like his mother was around but she was off trying to get rich and and dated a series of men may or may not have been partial subject matter to one of the characters (laughs) in one of the shows that we're going to talk about today um but we alluded this he inspired one of the characters in harper lee's to kill a mockingbird because he grew up being best friends with Harper Lee, which I actually didn't know until we jumped into the research on this. Oh, really? That I did know. Did you really? Um, Okay. I did. I didn't realize that Dill in To Kill a Mockingbird was based on him, but that makes complete sense now that we've said it. 100%. Um, Yeah. It's my understanding that they were close friends up until they worked on In Cold Blood together. And for those who don't know, In Cold Blood... Uh, was really what put Capote on the map. It came out after Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it was really what put him on the map. Right. Because it's basically a true crime novel about this quadruple killing that happened in Kansas. Oh, yeah. Uh, And both him and Harper Lee actually went out and did a bunch of research and interviews. And, you know, the lore is, is that they had thousands and thousands of pages worth of notes and information that ended up in this very large book about the murders and and uh what happened and the the murderers themselves and in my in my mind really kind of gave birth to what we now know as true crime. Oh, he's considered as a genre. the father of like <laughs> the the birthing of the true crime movement with this legendary novel. Um yeah, fascinating to get to that point because that point is really where Truman Capote becomes the celebrity figure we know as. I mean, he kind of worked his way up, but that... Okay, so he grows up with Harper Lee. His mom is flirting around, eventually does get them to New York City 
And um, I think on the Upper East Side on Park Avenue, oh, um, wow. which is a big deal. And that's where he gets the last name Capote uh, from one of the men that his mother is able to Marry. move up in society. Yes. You know, his whole dream growing up is he wanted to be rich and famous. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to follow in those social circles. And so he found his way to do that. And he actually convinced Harper Lee to move to New York, which is a big deal um, because she would become a recluse later in life. But right. I think it's interesting that Harper convinced her to live the big city life to chase her dreams of being a writer as well. Um, so just to fill in the story puzzle pieces for people, she agreed to go work on this project in Cold Blood with Truman Capote, who had already had some successes in his career because she had turned in her manuscript for To Kill a Mockingbird, um, but it hadn't been published yet. So she was still like, okay, I'm going to help my buddy. Like, I'm really interested in this stuff. Um, we're going to travel around. Um, and that's when things started to go south with them. You know, she took copious notes, like could tell you what was playing on the televisions in these homes of the people they interviewed. And Truman claimed to have a phonographic memory, could remember conversations up to 90%, it's been said, of what people said wow. to him. That was refuted later on. But um, oh, okay. <laughs> he did not take notes. He would finish the interviews and then write down a couple quotes after the fact. Um, and so there was a little bit of you know, Harper's doing all of this copious note-taking and research. He is resting on his supposed great memory. Um, and then To Kill a Mockingbird gets published. It becomes a gigantic bestseller, wins the Pulitzer Prize. Truman Capote is very jealous because Harper is now getting the accolades that he would like to get in his career. Right. Um, so it creates a rift there. And then Gold Blood gets published and also becomes a gigantic success. Um, mm. Not a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, though. And I think that was a sticking point going forward. But then Harper Lee gets very jealous because all she is given in the work is an acknowledgement, like at the end, like, hey, thanks. Um, Oy. And it wasn't even so much that she wasn't given proper credit. It's that he would become known for fabricating things. And it's been said that he fabricated a lot of the novel that is meant to be nonfiction novel. You know what I mean? Like, well, and I read somewhere that when he was interviewed about it all, he was like, well, it's nonfiction literature and made sure to emphasize literature, literature. which means I took creative license. <laughs> yeah. So they, they really stopped being friends after that. They spoke highly of each other's work after that point. But Harper, you know, like like I said, she became a recluse and never really had another nothing else after To Kill a Mockingbird. And Truman Capote actually never had a successful novel after In Cold Blood either. So, well, talking about things that didn't succeed, let's move on to our first show of the night. Are you ready? The very first musical based on a Truman Capote work. Yes, this is the first. And this is House of Flowers. Uh, so House of Flowers actually uh, had lyrics and book written by Capote, which is interesting. Um, and Harold Arlen did the music and lyrics as well. And it was produced by St. Suber. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, but so he too. was 
he's was a, at one point a famous Broadway producer and actually produced two other Broadway flops, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and Gigi. So there you go. Um, and he also produced the play version of The Grass Harp, which we will talk about a little bit later. Yes. Um, so he obviously was a fan of Capote's work. So we're going to start with the plot. Are you ready, kids? Here we go. The story concerns two neighboring bordellos, a.k.a. whorehouses, the battle for business in an idealized Haitian setting. One of the sex workers, Ottilie, <laughs> turns down a rich lord to marry a poor mountain boy named Royal. These are great names. Oh, great names. Her madam plots to keep her by having Royal sealed in a barrel and tossed into the ocean. But... Royal escapes the watery death by taking refuge on the back of a turtle. The lovers are eventually married and live happily ever after. So I want to state, because I read this in Nuts and Scary, this is based on a very short Truman Capote story. It was like <laughs> tacked on at the very end of the Breakfast at Tiffany's novella. And the musical is very loosely adapted. So I did not read the short story. I don't know if Turtle Barrel and all of those things happen. But um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. So if I you mean, are, it's a choice. What I when I was researching this, I'm like, is this where they got the idea for Jack Sparrow to get to Tortuga on the backs of tortoises? I 100 that he like roped with ropes with his hair. Like that's what this reminds me of. Anyways, that's where my brain went. Um, so this was actually, I think, my favorite of the three. Okay, interesting. Strictly because of the music, the score. The songs, um, it's really ahead of its time. It's really um, fun. Like, it was inspiring. And the lyrics pulled no punches, which I really appreciated and also kind of speaks to why it probably flopped in 1954. Right. Um, because, like, there's only so much that the general public was willing to put up with in 1954. But I, I don't know. There was just something about it that really captured my imagination and the fact we mentioned this in the clues it was the first musical performance outside trinidad and tobago to feature the new caribbean instrument the steel pan aka the steel drums um it was also the first time that they brought in people from trinidad and tobago to play those instruments because of course no one in america probably knew how to do it <laughs> so they actually brought in those instrumentalists to play the instruments on stage in the pit, which is really cool. I just, it's, it's a great example of how musical theater can influence pop culture because then the steel drums became very popular for the next few years. Oh yeah. Within pop music, within other musicals, you know, even that Island feel like there was something about the fifties that that island sound, the idea of like going and sitting on a white sandy beach, that's really when that kind of took off in the zeitgeist of pop culture. Well, yeah. I mean, the 50s are so interesting. You know, the greatest generation, my grandparents, um, were obsessed with Hawaii. And, you know, it 
was a big moment when Hawaii was admitted as a state, or and even in the lead up to that, the fact that we would have our own piece of paradise in the U.S., you know what I mean, as a U.S. state. And coming out of both of the world wars, you know, there's now disposable income, Americans are able to travel. Hawaii became not only part of our country, you have the Caribbean being such a fascinating spot, vacation spot for so many Americans um, who could maybe not afford to get to Venice or to, um, you know, some of those exotic European locales. Um, it really brought paradise closer to home. Um, and I think you see so much of that uh, reflected in pop music, uh, in the media and on Broadway, because Broadway was still very much part of the pop art scene, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot of tropical shows in the 50s you know some of them very famous south pacific well even in guys and dolls when they go to cuba oh my gosh absolutely (laughs) but back to house of flowers i the music is so much fun there were a couple what were they called has i let you down was just so funny there's so many great asides in that song sure. where she just like gets sassy with the audience and you're like, I love this woman. I don't even know who she is or what she's about, but gosh, I want to be friends. You know Besties. what I mean? Like that's what that <laughs> that's what that one was uh, for me, you know, and slide boy slide. Did you listen to that one? Oh, I wanted yeah. to like, I was like, who's going to choreograph to this? Oh my God. Who's going to choreograph to this? Can they teach a masterclass? Because I want to just dance to it. Oh my goodness. Well, I have an idea on that. But like this score, so of all three of the shows we're going to talk about today, probably has the most famous score. You know, Harold Arlen composed a lot of things. He's best known for The Wizard of Oz, you know. But I think what's interesting about bringing up House of Flowers is it shows the diversity of him as a composer um, because this doesn't feel like The Wizard of Oz at all. Not even a little bit. It just is a reminder that he he wrote so much of the American songbook. And speaking of the songbook, two songs from the show became standards even after the show flopped. Um, Asleep and Bee became, you know, so many performers of color recorded both that song and I Never Has Seen Snow, um, which are still pop popular in club acts to this day. You can hear them at jazz clubs, you know, in cabarets. Broadway performers still perform them on their albums. I'm not surprised. Well, when I was reading the chapter or the blurb on this, it's actually <laughs> a really long blurb, uh, in Not Since Carrie, you know, Ken Mendelbaum, you know, the god of these older flops, uh, you know, remarked that listening to the cast album to this, it's really hard to wrap your head around how this show could have flopped. You know what I mean? Because the score is so wonderful in the cast. I mean, this cast has legends in it. Some of them were not even legends yet. You know, Pearl Bailey was in the cast, oh. Diane Carroll um, and Alvin Ailey, like in the cast. I know. Deal. And Jeffrey Holder. You had mentioned choreography. Jeffrey Holder um, was credited for like doing some of the geographies. So I'd like to think that that number was choreographed by Jeffrey Holdler and was taught to our friend Simeon Den, who knows Jeffrey. And hopefully... Simeon, <laughs> Simeon. I need you to teach a masterclass on this <laughs> number. Thank you very much. (laughs) Absolutely. And for anyone who doesn't know Jeffrey Holder, you should. Uh, He directed the Broadway production of The Wiz, but was also a famous actor and dancer. Um, If you've ever seen the movie version of Annie, because I will bring it up any chance I get, he is the Punjab. (laughs) He is the Punjab in the movie. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah, this is... Okay, so why would this show flop? I think that a big part of it is that basically idealizes and celebrates prostitution. 
Yeah, that was popular in the 50s, too, though. Like, really bad. It was, but, like, this is, uh, generally speaking, when it would be romanticized in whatever form. Right. It was coming from a male's point of view. Right. This is not. This is actually coming from the female point of view, which I love and find fascinating. Um, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but all three of these shows tonight have really strong leading women Absolutely. who are really complicated, but also there in each of these shows, there are songs that are very misogynistic. And I can't tell if it's Truman Capote trying to hold a mirror up and saying, this is what you look like when you mansplain or cat call or treat a woman less than, or if he is celebrating it. Like I can't I, really figure it out. So, you know, it brings up a difficult thing, but gay men are still men. And we are not immune to being misogynist. We need to check ourselves <laughs> every single day. <laughs> and um, I, I was reading somewhere that uh, one of the things that people thought was the reason why it may not have worked is that it may have been too queer of a point of view for the heterosexual audiences. Um, oh, you interesting. Know, and with that, I could see... Of course, it's going to write really strong women, female characters, because mm -hmm. that is something that the LGBT community, especially gay men, idolize so much of their, they look up to strong women. It's it's part of the culture. But on the flip side, can also be, without knowing it, extremely misogynistic. You know what I mean? So I'm sure. wondering if, because this is, of all three shows that we're doing, this is the one he's most hands-on. He, like, physically yeah. wrote this one. Which it, I think is why it's so in your face with some of the lyrics and absolutely. why it's it doesn't pull any punches, like absolutely. I was saying earlier. So I wonder if he didn't allow himself as the storyteller to remove himself enough from the story to present something that was a little bit more true to the characters. Maybe there's too much Truman in it. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's I know that like there was a lot of that romanticizing prostitution that came out in the 50s. But the 50s, like, in general, are pretty conservative. Right. And when you think about, like, you have to have the general public, and that means the middle ground, so people on both sides of the coin willing to go and pay their money to see a show, and that's how it doesn't flop. Right. And I think that this one actually pushes the envelope too far because this is pre the free love movement, you know, this is pre the civil rights right. movement, which it's also a completely BIPOC show. 100%. I mean, there, you've got... There is no white character in this show. No, so it's people of color. It's set in foreign lands, not yeah. that foreign. It's prostitutes, I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, I just don't... I don't see how in 1950s America... This show succeeds in any realm. Ironically, it was the most successful of these three shows. <laughs> three shows that were It covering. actually ran. It didn't close before opening. And, you know, it, it ran for a few weeks. But it's, uh, I don't know. I find it fascinating. And, like, at the time, here's what I think is a really interesting correlation. So in uh, American society at the time, there was this huge influx of women rejoining the workforce. Right. So regaining their power making their own money again. I mean, I th if I remember correctly, you still couldn't get a credit card or a line of credit if you were a woman. It had Ooh. to be in your husband's name. But they were re-entering the workforce and bringing money into the household again, which 
that was a big deal. It was, and it was a big change in our society. And then this is also the same year, ironically, that McCarthy is amended. Yes. This is also the same year where the Supreme Court rules that segregation in schools is unconstitutional. Right. And you have this, this all black cast. On all Broadway. black cast. I mean, come on. Tensions are high. You also had Ellis Island then closes its immigration port. Oh, yeah. You also had the nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands that got a bunch of people sick and poisoned the water and all this other stuff. And you learn that apparently America has been testing nuclear bombs and no one knew about it. Surprise. Um, surprise. You know, and there was just, there was also, and I, I really apologize to everybody, but this is the actual term that is in the yes. records. But there was this thing happening called Operation Wetback, and that is the official title. Please know that I do not mean to use that as a slur, but it was something put forth by Congress and the Senate to basically export a bunch of immigrants from Mexico um, and put them back in Mexico. And so there is a lot of strain happening on relations between whites and people of color in this country. And like, I know that not much has changed, but this is like a really heightened year for all of it. And on top of that, Truman Capote is like, yeah, we're totally going to do a completely <laughs> ethnic cast on Broadway and you're going to like it. And I, I mean, you have to have some respect for that. <laughs> and it's yeah. not just like completely ethnic cast, also completely ethnic cast with an ethnic leading lady. Yeah. I mean... Who is... Let's take her profession out of it as a successful businesswoman, you know, mm -hmm. and is portrayed as such. Yeah, there's there's a lot. I mean, the 50s were... It's so crazy because we look so fondly on them. And there are reasons why we should do that. Corporations paid a lot, a lot more in tax back then. That's a good <laughs> thing. We actually had a middle class, but it wasn't a middle class for everybody. Um, I love how you brought up the Ellis Island situation. Ellis Island closed. It became a race, and it's and it's a dirty mark on American history that nobody wants to talk about. Is so many immigrant groups suddenly got assimilated into white culture so mm -hmm. they could otherize the Latino community community. Uh, and the black community and so many things like that, because up until the 50s, these pockets of immigrants, the Polish, the Italians, the Eastern Europeans were seen as others. But yeah. the minute and, and they really banded together, that's why we have little Italy's and, you know, little Poland's in our big cities. They banded together because nobody wanted to associate with them. And it was almost like there was this push like, well, let's cut it off. So we're going to cut off immigration in the U.S. We're going to say that you guys get to be our friends because we need to make a common enemy out of these others. It's a really awful time. So, like, yeah. we are still feeling the effects of that. Oh, oh yes. 70 years later. So. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on that that kind of leads into this becoming a flop. Now, if this were to be remade now or even just give it new life, I would be fascinated to see how it would do. I mean, a s turtles and barrels aside. <laughs> I mean, I love turtles, but, <laughs> you know, I would actually be fascinated by this getting a revival. I I think that it's one of those that's been lost to the fathomless files that actually could be remade. I so they have attempted. I you know the 
the judgment up until this point is that it's something that might be better heard in concert than a full-blown production. Okay. So I don't know that rings true to it. This is definitely one that I would say if you're going to bring it back, maybe let's talk about putting a new book. But it's hard because this is Capote and Capote is a wordsmith. So it's not like the book is bad. Um but you can't throw out the score. I mean, this is this is a fantastic score. So good. This is not if if anything, I would say maybe there is a playwright of color who could come in and help adapt Truman Capote's work, um, both lyrics and bookwise, to make sense from a female perspective, to soften maybe some of that misogynistic quality that was either present due to the time period or because Truman allowed to put himself too much into the work itself. I don't know. Well, and I should also state that I felt of these three, this was the least misogynistic. Yes. 100%. Um, for sure. Which is interesting because Capote actually was involved in this one and right. not in the other two. So there is that. This is our commercial break. To advertise here, please email myfavoriteflop at gmail.com and visit our website for previous episodes and to buy merch Please buy our merch. We have a one-year-old to feed. And now back to my favorite flop. Okay, so House of Flowers played 165 performances of the 172 we mentioned in our first clue. So the second musical based on Truman Capote source material played none. Like literally didn't even open on Broadway. It closed before opening night. And that was (laughs) the one that should have been a big hit. Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? Yeah. How this wasn't a big hit, just strictly on name alone, is shocking. Well, and the leading ladies. So Also I, that. So I guess I should give the synopsis to this one, right? All you, Bobby. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So Breakfast at Tiffany's, the musical, features music and lyrics by Bob Merrill, who wrote uh, many a hit, but also lovingly wrote flops like Take Me Along and Henry, Sweet Henry. The original book was written by A. Burroughs, who was the original director as well. Um, He famously did How to Succeed. But this is like shocking fact. uh, Was replaced by legendary playwright who did not write musicals, Edward Albee, which again, this should have been a big deal. Um, All right. And so the synopsis is this, in case you don't know, uh, (laughs) based on Truman Capote's novella, uh, this is the story of a young, naive, eccentric cafe society girl who falls in love with a struggling writer who moves into her building, but her past threatens to get in the way. Holly Golightly's lifestyle confuses and fascinates Paul. In public, she flirts through parties with a sexy, sophisticated air, but when they're alone, she changes into a sweetly vulnerable bundle of neuroses. Um, You know, famously, the movie is Audrey Hepburn, who... You know, even though Capote didn't agree with her casting, is the epitome of who this character is. We we chatted a little bit today. I don't even know if women, because time has moved on, I don't even know if women embody this kind of character anymore. Um, it's really unique, for sure. You know, Truman Capote compares her more to a geisha than an escort, you know, um, <laughs> which, again, he likes flowery. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that right there... Stamp of approval, misogyny. Like, they're the same thing. I don't care how you want to spin it. We all read Memoirs of a Geisha in the early 2000s. We all saw that movie. Like, come on. (laughs) I mean, 
I, I, geisha just sounds fancier than she's an uh. escort. Um, but essentially, you know, men buy her gifts. They pay for her apartment. They keep her in New York City in her nice apartment um, because she spends time with them. Um, and sometimes they spend the night, but not always, um, you know oftentimes they just want to be around her. I mean, sometimes they like even just pay her to read the weather, which is gross. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so crazy because I remember, well, like, I want to actually hear from you. Were you obsessed with Breakfast at Tiffany's? Because I know that a lot of musical theater women are obsessed with this film, the film that that, that was made from the novella. Okay, so I was not. Um, okay. I'm also... <laughs> I'm also a more masculine woman, so maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Okay. But I I remember watching it. Of course, my dad showed it to me, you know, because he showed me all the classics. And I remember really enjoying Audrey Hepburn as Audrey Hepburn, okay. but not really liking the film. Okay. And I mean, I'm a huge Audrey Hepburn fan. And I actually, one of the things that people don't really think of, about her for but her children's hour is one of my favorites i mean that being said her visual in the movie was so amazing and you just kind of wish that you were able to walk around with that kind of grace right and confidence and i say grace in the sense that she would stumble or she would whatever but she had so much self-assurance in her center that she didn't need to explain herself or apologize. And that essence that she has in the film is something that, I mean, to this day, I wish I could find in myself. And I'm sure that's what is so attractive about the film for so many women, especially for so many musical theater women, where, I mean, most of the roles that we're presented with, we need to find that kind of grace. Sure. Probably one of the many reasons I struggle with classic musical theater because I don't have that kind of grace. You know, but that sense of owning a room without overtaking the room. Like, it's that thing. And it's because of when these musicals were written and men didn't want women to overtake the room, but they wanted you to walk in and take their breath away, right? Right. Like, it was this weird give and take. And that is very much the essence of Holly Holly Golightly. She is able to own the room without shaming a man without dimming a man's light that kind of power yes and a woman who can find that power and know how to use it as a tool that is a powerful woman and uh i don't think a lot of men really recognize that no well Um, yeah i think i I bring up people in our profession specifically because i think that for a lot of young women in musical theater, you know, unless you come from, you have connections and you have money and you have a background, you are struggling and you are competing against a lot of people who look very similar to you, have similar talents and things like that. There are a lot of women in this industry. And oh yeah, climbing uphill, real life, friends. Real life. Real life. And <laughs> like moving to New York only gets more and more expensive every year. So like the idea of being able to find people who keep you so you can pursue your interests is alluring. To bring it back to the musical, because there have also been many play iterations of this as well everybody has tried to find another way to repurpose this iconic story and Mm -hmm. 
I I really believe that you're not going to ever be able to touch the film no. for the sheer fact that that was one of those perfect storms of casting the right creatives involved. And, you know, even though it's Truman Capote's work, they got him out of the way. And don't get me wrong, I love Marilyn Monroe, but she would it would have been a very different film. It would have been a very different film if he had gotten his way and Marilyn would have played that part. Oh, yeah. And so the musical, they cast uh, Mary Tyler Moore. That's why she as was Holly throwing her Gull- That's why she's throwing her hat. Um, and so she was in the original casting. She did all the out-of-town tryouts, even with the changeover. And right. when the changeover happened to El- Edward Alvey, she was convinced that he hated her. I don't know if he did, but she was convinced that he did. And she was like, I'm going to get fired, so I'm just going to throw caution to the wind and do what I want to do. Which I kind of love, but Mary Tyler Moore isn't one of those women that I view as having that essence of Holly Golightly. No, she is like a female Charlie Brown. She's a lovable moppet that, you know, you love her, but everything goes, she's, she just doesn't have the shine. And I'm not just saying strictly from the Mary Tyler Moore show. You even get that on the Dick Van Dyke show and her, even her television and and film career outside of both of those projects, she exudes that she's almost got a rain cloud, but she's still eternally optimistic. That's Mm -hmm. not Holly Golightly. Holly doesn't have a rain cloud. No. I mean, she feels things deeply, right? but she is talk about someone who's able to put on a mask. That character, that is all she knows how to do. And she does it with such skill and ease that you would never know. Right. And that is really hard to find in any one person, let alone the right actress who can also sing whatever you're asking them to sing. Um, And it's interesting because, so we mentioned this before, how Mary Tyler Moore was in the production, but when, so they did a um, recording of the show itself and put it on an LP. Yes. So one of the performances. But then they actually did a proper studio cast recording and they recast Holly Golightly and it's Faith Prince singing everything. Which is an interesting choice. Ironically, I've, I listened to both and they sound the same to me. Oh, yeah. Mary Tyler Moore is a fantastic musical theater performer. Totally. Like her Broadway career, she just did not land in the right projects because there is another world where she was was a a legend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the thing is, is that they both have the same issue for me vocally and how they're presenting the music, which they sound like Millie. Yes. Oh my gosh. Where everything's doe-eyed and exciting and And brassy and... and Yeah. And I was like, that's not what I was expecting. I love how you brought up Millie. It was very much... There's so much going on in the score, which I actually like the score a lot, but I don't think it makes a good musical. Um, Agreed. There... I was just like, what, 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 what novella did you read and what movie did you watch? Because this is not the direction I would have taken some of these songs. Yeah, it doesn't have the right tone. What's also interesting is like, so it's a full two act musical, friends. Each act had 20 songs. Oh my God, it's so much music. Well, and look, to be fair. And a full book. Like, it's not a sung through show. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know if that that official recording is officially an actual set list of songs that existed in the show at the same time, because this had so many problems. There was so much material that got swapped in and out 
on top of the book writer changing. You know what I right. mean? It's hard I to mean, say. I mean, I heard the Boston out-of-town tryouts were four hours long. Yes, yes. So I can imagine that they probably had similar amount and, of music. Like, what story can you tell with this novella in four hours? Like... I just, it was like they wanted to give each man their own song. They Which wanted is awful. to give each outstanding character their own song. Plus, you need to give Holly enough material to make her your central character. Cause I mean, we're talking about structure purely. So everybody knows, like, you're, there are actual rules in the Tonys that you have to have so many songs as a leading actor or actress to be nominated for a leading actor, Tony, in a musical. So something like Shrek, like if Shrek hadn't actually had all the songs he had and they made it more of an acting piece and he got like one or two standout songs, he wouldn't have been nominated for Best Actor. No, he would have been Best Featured probably. Probably, even though he would have been your central character. So like you have to give Holly all of that material because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do with the structure. But it just didn't work. It just didn't work. And there's one... We talk about misogyny, right? And (laughs) some of the ways that Truman Capote would hold... Again, I don't know what his intentions were, but holding that mirror up to man... Right. The world of men and saying, look at how ridiculous you are. And one of the songs in this show is called Dirty Old Men. Oh, and it's bad. And the music... And the, I mean, the music is actually very reminiscent of 42nd Street when they do dames, except the lyrics are just so like, wow, you really just went after the white middle-aged man and really called them out on their crap. I mean, it's, well, whoa. <laughs> uh, but are, or, where are they in on the joke? Is it like, ha, ha, ha. That's what I'm saying is ha, I don't know. I don't, the score is so fascinating because I was hearing... You know, I was hearing so many contemporaries of Bob Merrill. I was hearing some Julie Stein. Um, I was hearing some Sondheim. You know, one show that I hope we cover one day when we talk about shows that never even got to previews on this podcast um, is Stephen Sondheim's first show, Saturday Night. And there was so much of Saturday Night I was hearing in this score. Oh, there you go. I was like, is not right for breakfast at Tiffany's. (laughs) Um, No, the score. Yeah. Well, so... The closest thing in musical theater I think I could compare to what a Breakfast at Tiffany's musical could be, and there are obviously big differences, is I was noticing a lot of similarities, and I didn't even connect this until we saw this, This we worked on this episode, was Cabaret, because Sally Bowles is mm. similar in a European sense, and obviously she has that whole performer thing on top of it, um, but she's kind of a Holly character, and I was thinking like in 1966, Liza would have actually been an inspired choice because Holly's supposed to be yeah. like 19, 20 years old. You know, it's funny you say that. I thought that as well. I didn't make the connection with Cabaret, but that makes complete sense. Like I was I was seeing that and I was looking structurally in Cabaret, no matter what version you do, allows Sally to have her material and Cliff mm-hmm. to not. And <laughs> No, but Cliff also is the significant male character in Sally's life. And what this musical should have been, it should have really focused on Paul and her relationship with a lot of these other characters very much being side characters. Right, pulling them from the chorus and giving them one or two lines. Yeah. It was also... So 
one of I think it's like the second song in, third song in. It's called Wittiest Fellow. Oh gosh. In Pittsburgh. And I just just so everyone knows, you can go listen to the cast recordings on YouTube if you're interested. But Wittiest Fellow was so offensive. And the fact that it's Holly Golightly's show. Yeah. And that was your first introduction to anything was Wittiest Fellow in Pittsburgh, basically telling men, oh, if you want an easy girl, if you want an easy catch, if you want a girl who's going to give you what you want, go to New York because they'll just fall at your feet. And I was like, wow, I don't I don't even know if I want to continue listening to this. Yeah. that Well, and then Lula May, you know, which should have been this. It just was so digging into her. Like, mm-hmm. and I was like with this male voice and I was almost like, I get what you're trying to do story-wise by being like, tear off the mask, Holly. You're Lula May. You know what I mean? But it almost felt It gross. was angry and condescending. And I mean, maybe that's what you want because you don't want to like Paul. But like, where is Holly's realization? I don't know. I just feel like... Well, her have... realization is same mistakes, which is her 11 o'clock number, but, which uh. just made me want to throw the whole script out the window because I was like, you did all this other great stuff where she has moments of inspiration and then her 11 o'clock number is saying, I'll do it exactly the same way all over again. And it sounds like a song. It sounds like uh, Not For The Life Of Me. Oh, yeah. No, it's not. And you're like, what? (laughs) No, this score, you know, the entire time I was listening to this, and again, it's not a bad score. In fact, I think there's material that could absolutely be plucked out and exist. For sure. Audition books or on albums and all that. The older woman's song was great. I actually really liked that one. It was like a male version of Catch Me. Oh, it was wonderful. I think that there needs to be a new Breakfast at Tiffany's, and I actually would love to see the Grey Gardens team work on it. Oh, Interesting. And the only reason I say that is because Holly needs to have two voices. She needs to have the voice that she presents that represents Holly, the character that she's playing. You know what I mean? And it needs to have a mysticism to it. And it needs to have um, a sexiness to it. And it needs to have like there needs to be mystery to it. It needs to feel majestic. You Mm. need to musically understand why she's so alluring to all these other people. But on the flip side, she needs to have her interior monologue voice, especially what she's going to present to the audience in her point of view. And then also how she's going to speak with Paul as she opens up and peels back some of those layers, right? Right. And this score did not have that. No, it didn't. I think that's where it does a massive disservice to the actual original material in that (laughs) it doesn't, celebrate the complexity that is Holly Golightly in any way, shape, or form. They really... It really felt... And to me, as a woman, it felt like men writing the idealized version of this woman for their own gain, for their own pleasure, for their own whatever, instead of actually having a conversation about who she is. It didn't work for me. It didn't work for me. It obviously didn't work for anyone at the time. I mean, I'm I'm shocked that this didn't at least open. I mean, you've got Mary Tyler Moore, you know, Michael Kidd choreographed this thing. You've got, I mean, not only A. Burroughs and Bob Merrill, but then you get like Edward Albee. I, if I were in New York, I'd be like, I want to see the Edward Albee musical. Like uh, you saw what Merrick said in the Times when it came out, right? No, what did he okay, say? So. <laughs> 
he said, uh, announcing the shutdown of the production, he came out and said, rather than sub subject the drama critics and the public to an excruciating, boring evening, they should shut it down. Uh, yeah, that's... So apparently, even though it had all of the right right ingredients, it was still a rough, boring evening. And, you know, if you're going to have a four-hour show, they better stay awake. And again, this comes back to, I don't know that you're going to recapture that lightning in a bottle that you got with Audrey Hepburn. I just don't think you are. I, it's w- like once-in-a-lifetime casting, you know? Yeah, I, I think- mean... You shouldn't, I, I personally think that they shouldn't attempt this show again if they do until they have a woman to play Holly. Oh, you have to have the woman. And not just a name. I mean, find the actress who actually should be doing this. This commercial break is sponsored by Please Buy Our Merch. Please visit www.myfavoriteflop.com today so we had house of flowers in the 1950s we then had breakfast at tiffany's in the 1960s and then in 1971 we got the musical adaptation of the 1952 grass harp so it opened on a tuesday and closed on a saturday after seven performances so i will say that I actually liked the score to this one the most. And I think, um, you know, how with the grass harp, even though it was a story written in the fifties based on his life in the thirties, maybe, um, you know, it makes sense as a seventies musical, but I, to be honest, like I think of Pete's dragon when I think of seventies musicals. And so I think of like, you know, these, uh, like peddling salesman music. I don't know. Like it just <laughs> reminds me of the plot of Pete's Dragon. And I'm like, to me, that's the 70s. So this musical fits squarely into, I don't know, there's like a backyard kind of like Midwest slash Southern grew up in the Dust Bowl feel to it. Right. So do um, you want to give the synopsis on this one? Yes. So that we, let's, okay. let's go over the synopsis. The Grass Harp is an intimate story of Dolly Hart, a.k.a. Barbara Cook, a sweet-natured spinster with a secret recipe for an elixir cure, and her demanding sister, Verna, who is determined to exploit the recipe for her own purposes. One day, after Dolly has an argument with Verna, Dolly takes Colin, her orphan nephew, and Catherine, their black housekeeper, to go on an adventure to find a new home. They start walking and come across a treehouse in a chinaberry tree and decide to camp out there. A charismatic cult leader, Baby Love, comes across the treehouse and its new inhabitants while on her own journey. They create a commune where anyone and everyone is welcome. Verna, meanwhile, informs the sheriff of her sister's disappearance. The sheriff organizes a search party and eventually arrests Catherine, the housekeeper. In a climactic event, a confrontation among the search party and the residents of the treehouse lead to Riley, aka Baby Love's daughter, getting shot in the shoulder. After Judge Cool discusses the situation, everyone agrees that it is a pointless struggle and old relationships are invigorated once again. Many people leave as friends. Verna and Dolly repair their relationship. It should be reiterated that this is based, this one of all of them is truly based on his real life. Like, 
this happened. He lived with his aunts when he was in Alabama and besties with Harper Lee. I believe Harper Lee inspires, I don't know if it's in the musical, but definitely in the novella, inspires one of the characters because they inspired in each other's works. Um, And uh, his aunt definitely had a secret potion that she took to her grave. Um, Holy cow. Pirelli's Miracle Elixir. Um, (laughs) To me, this is the one that actually makes the most sense as a musical. You know, Breakfast, obviously, because of how popular it is. But again, I live for some Pete's Dragon. So I'm like, give me the hillbillies. Give me the cult. Give me baby love. Like, give me Karen Morrow. Um, (laughs) But I don't think it hits the marks it needed to. And I think even if it had, it's still going to be a tough selling point. You know, there's a lot to love about the plot here as far as a musical is concerned. But um, because we love the 70s, we're all about escapism and in quirky and kind of panning up that mirror. You like to bring that up. Um, yeah. Putting up a mirror of some of our backwoods community. We've just now come out of a lot of these movements, you know, these social movements in the U.S. And there is this idea of these like country bumpkins, you know. Um, Well, and and it's interesting you bring that up. So my grandmother actually um, grew up in the Depression and the Dust Bowl um, and is from the Ozarks, like the original Ozarks, not what we see in the TV show, um, and grew up on a farm in the whole nine yards. And she actually... The way that she would talk about that time, it it's romantic, even though it was so difficult for them physically, emotionally. I mean, what they would have to go through just to make a scraping of a living right. and be able to feed their family. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, but when she would talk about it, there was this there was this romance to it. There was this sense of awe and wonder. I mean, up until she died, that's how she talked about it. Um, and it always like sparked my imagination as a kid, whenever she would talk about that time. And it's funny that this is called the grass harp. And I know that it's referring to the, the tall dried grass, but in, (laughs) in, in Missouri, um, there's actually a tradition where you find the perfect blade of grass. Okay. You pluck it and you stick it between your two thumbs and there's like a way to get that tension just right and you can play it like a harmonica. Can you really? Yeah. I mean, it's my grandmother was brilliant at it. I can get like maybe two notes out of it, but it's it it that was a grass harp. And so to me that when I heard the title to this, I was like, oh my gosh, someone knows. And so that there is something really magical about that to me and really magical about the, um, the essence of what this show is and the magic that they pull out of the score. Right. I mean, we talk about how these two gentlemen had never done a musical before, but I will say that they're both from... You had Clabe, who was from Louisiana. Right. You know, and who grew up, I'm sure, in that world of country folk. And so he certainly gets the essence. And I actually think the score is really... Like you said, it's really beautiful um, and really brings out an imagination to me. But before we get too far into the score, can we just take one second and mention floozies? Okay, so we talked a little bit about this earlier today. Christina, 
I just want to point out, and then I want to hear your thoughts because our listeners need to hear these thoughts, right? Um, Floozies is probably the most popular song that has survived from the grass harp. It is very common in musical theater programs across this country. And you being a musical theater educator, I know you have opinions. Um, it is usually given to uh, attractive ingenue male dancers uh, in their post-1960 like it's it's one of those ones that's given to them. Floozies is a popular song choice in musical theater programs. A lot of people have it in their audition books. I say that's unacceptable. Okay, so when I first heard it, I was like, so this needs to go in my stalker cabaret that I've been trying to put together for so long. And every time I hear a stalker song, it goes in that file for the sheer fact that it's a little overwhelming how many of those exist. Oh, 100% either musical theater or pop music. Um, that's a little unnerving. But this one really takes the cake because at no point did I laugh. At no point did I say, oh, that's kind of, you know, that's really funny and terrible all the same. No, it's just terrible. Well, people think it's charming. I don't understand. I mean, it talks about this young man staring at women's breasts and objectifying them. And like the some of the lyrics were just so... They're very specific and very uncomfortable and did not make me feel nice. And I knew it was meant to be this. I don't know. I don't know if he's trying to make a compliment. I don't know what it was, but it was very uncomfortable for a woman in 2020. And I would assume any woman in 1971. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad that we got that point of view. I think the moral of that story is, hi, musical theater educators, stop assigning floozies. Stop it now. I also want to talk about the fact that this show is one act. Yeah. And it's basically Which, sung through. So the book isn't um, too prevalent in it. And that I found interesting. When I learned it was a one act, it was mostly sung through. I realized that I didn't actually get enough of the story just from the music. Yeah. Uh, I think, again, our buddy Ken Mandelbaum, I'm going to reference him a lot on this episode because all three of these shows are covered extensively. Um, more than one paragraph uh, in his brilliant book, Thoughts and Scary. Um, you know, he mentioned that this score, it's a great score. But when you realize that that's it in, in all of the dialogue that connects it is just very brief, you know, superfluous kind of connective material. Then when you start to analyze that the score is the show, it's just the, the sum of its parts is not enough for this to to exist. Yeah, yeah. I I completely agree. I just... I think that you actually need to round it out with a bit more of a book because it's so quirky. Yeah. Right? Like, it's very fantastical and it has these <laughs> very strange characters involved. And there's also the butting of heads between Verna and Dolly. And there's a lot to that relationship right. when you read about it. And I didn't get that from the score or from the cast album. I went and I looked because as we've discussed even in this episode, but in previous episodes as well, like a timing of when a show comes out is important right? Uh, for its success or not. I mean, sometimes you just get a great show no matter what, and it's going to succeed no matter what the outside influences are, right? right. But this one, this came out, again, the space race is still really active. We had the International Space Station launched... Apollo 14 happened, Mariner 9. It, there was a lot of that going on. The first microprocessor showed up. And then the Pentagon Papers 
that came out stating the American public was lied to about the Vietnam War and why it was started. You know, all of these things are happening around this musical that is very simple at its core and is about very simple people, silly as they are. They're, it's a simple, simple relationships and a simple story. And I don't know that it stood a chance with all that going on. I don't know if we were ready to do it. I actually don't know if in 2021 we're ready to... I don't think this musical works. Um, I think that um, I enjoy the score, but I think the story is ripe for musicalization. But the problem is, is romancing this kind of people in America, which are, are, we do this in so many other works, literary works, movie works, the simplistic poor people in other countries, you know, we are able to take that and we show them as majestic creatures. You look at something like Brigadoon, you know, mm. these simplistic people have trapped themselves in a magical town mm. where time doesn't exist to preserve the simplicity of their town. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and we're seeing that a little bit with the Schmigadoon. Oh, Schmigadoon. Stuff. So we do that with other cultures, but because the U.S. has so many complicated tangents with race and classism and other issues associated with some of these communities, I don't know if we could honestly tell the story with the majestic-ness that needs to happen. That's a really good point and not one I had really thought about. I mean... I think you're right. I think that would be really difficult for the... It would take a really special writer to come in and book doctor this one. Because there's already the fact that the Black character is being framed. You know what I mean? Like... Yes. Yeah. Um, But I would love to see this mystical... Because there's so much you could explore. The idea that she's trying to get Dolly Hart to market this 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 potion, you know what I mean, and keep right. this this secret thing from her for financial reasons, but also from a legacy standpoint. Because if Dolly Love doesn't do anything with it, it dies with her. It goes to the grave, which is what happened in real life with Truman's aunt. She right. never allowed anyone to have access to it. So you lose that family history. That thing dies with somebody. Um, right. So there's a little bit of a like, let's make money off of this. It's so amazing. But it's also like, let's let our legacy live past us. And that's something right. that I don't get in this musical at all, but I think would be really interesting. To I explore. agree. I think I think that would be a really interesting point to explore if someone were to revisit it. I think it's also a fun fact just to point out that this had two out of town tryouts mm-hmm. and Miss Elaine Stritch, the legend, played Baby Love. And that would have been a sight to see. Talk about someone who is magnetic and can convince large groups of people to follow her. Elaine Stritch is one of those humans. Well, and do you Um, know who they almost got to do the Broadway production as Baby Love? No. They almost got Mama Cass from the Mamas and the Papas. (gasps) No. And that that fell through. Could you imagine? That would have... I mean, we love Karen Morrow and she was brilliant in this role, but that would have been something to see. So another really interesting fact about the show is that the scenic designer decided to use burlap fabric all over the place, including the wings and the curtains and stuff. Um, And burlap fabric is really good at absorbing sound. And this was actually the last show on Broadway that didn't use mics for its cast. 
Oh, yeah. And they tried. There was just no way. It really forced Broadway to adapt because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about cast member Karen Morrow, you know, it was it was determined when she came on the scene that she would be the next Ethel Merman. And Ethel Merman famously never sang with a microphone um, on Broadway. And this show, because of the scenic design, it just it it forced Broadway producers and engineers to realize we need to find a way to amplify sound because we need to not be constrained by the limitations of set and things like that. You know, the world is evolving, technology is evolving, we need to do it. Um, And there were a lot of people in the industry like Karen who found that to be a detriment to their careers moving forward. So many singers had been trained to sing in 1,500, 1,800 seat Broadway theaters without amplification, you know? Right. And That's how I was trained. And so the minute you put a mic on them, the voice sounds different. The performance is different. You know, it's a different muscle. The muscles in your in your throat act differently. They um, do. This was a major shift uh, that uh, is a weird little footnote in the, you know, annals of Broadway history. But yeah, the grass harp. The grass harp. The last one to use the mics. Or not use mics, I should say. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Just to recap, friends, we've gone over the grass harp, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and House of Flowers. All Truman Capote shows. Well, all based on Truman Capote work. Yes. And it kind of begs the question, Bobby, why, one, why do people feel so inclined to turn his works into so many other mediums, right? Because they all started as short stories, but all almost everything he's ever written has been turned into something else. Um, and why have we not seen anything of his since 1972? So I think the reason that his works lean towards theatricality, I found a really interesting quote about him. Mm. Um, and I forgot who said it. And it might have actually been Harper Lee, where it was like, this is how I can describe Truman Capote to you. You could say, hey, Truman, did you hear that JFK was shot? And he would come right back at you and say, yeah, I was the one driving the car. And no one would blink an eye. You know what I mean? Like, even though you knew Truman Capote wasn't driving the car, um, he had a way of presenting the world in facts so extravagantly and over the top. You know what I mean? Which I think lends to musical theater. So I get why people were drawn to bringing his works to the stage. But I would corner that to say, but without... Truman Capote's involvement, like, how can you recreate Capote? But with House of Flowers, he was right there. So um, (laughs) that kind of ruins my, I don't know, what are your feelings on it, Christina? You said it in your description of him where he is, he's larger than life. And so what he writes is larger than life. I mean, that thing is what makes great musical theater. It's also what makes great theater. Right. If in the right hands, it's what makes great film. And I think that I think it's also interesting that he always had these strong female leads. I mean, almost in I, I'm not like completely versed in all of his work, but especially in these three, they all are just these incredibly complicated, strange women who are very unique. And he pulls those things from his real life and those characteristics, you know? And I I find that fascinating as a woman. And I actually think that a lot of what he wrote was well ahead of its time. 
So I'm going to pose some a question for you then. Do okay. you think, and again, I think this ties into not only environment of his the way he was raised, but also his role as a very open gay man. Do mm-hmm. you think he was enamored with women, which is why he was able to tell these complex stories? Or do you think he like truly liked women? Do you think it was more an admiration? Or do you think that... You know what I mean? Because they're complex. But one could be said, like, why write such complicated people? Why not just write straightforward women who don't have, you know, so many issues and, and personality traits and things well, like that? Um, I, I mean, it's hard to say what his intentions were. I certainly would like to think that it comes from a place of admiration, but I also could see it as a place of he doesn't pull punches with anyone. Okay. Just like he doesn't, you know, when he would write about other celebrities, when he would, any of those things. And he, he only knows complicated women. Right. So throughout his life, he had these really complicated relationships with different women. I mean, his mother, as you've mentioned, Liza Minnelli, um, Marilyn Monroe, Liz Taylor, Grace Kelly. I mean, these are really complicated multi-dimensional women um, who had really complicated public lives as well. And that's the world he wanted to live in. So I think it's really, I don't think he would know how to write anything else. Yeah. Well, so do you think we're far enough away? I mean, he passed away in the 80s. Um, do you think we're far enough away in history that we could now go back and work at it, look at his work subjectively and readapt them? I think in every single one of these cases, with the exception of House of Flowers, because the score is leaps and bounds above a lot of things we've listened to on this podcast. <laughs> uh, do you think that we could that it's time to go back and, and reimagine some of these pieces? Yes, I I think that it would actually be. I kind of like I said before. I think t- Breakfast at Tiffany's kind of needs to be left alone, um, and we need to wait until we find the right actor. Right. But I do think that we should go back and revisit these other two: House of Flowers and The Grass Harp. I I believe that there is a way that they work. Um, I also believe in going back and looking at some of Capote's other stuff. I mean, he was a brilliant writer, and I know that ultimately why his work kind of went the way of the dodo is because of him burning so many bridges and just tearing everyone down and being left alone. But you, like you asked, it's, I think we're far enough away. I think we're far enough away now in 2021 that we're able to do that. Well, I think, you know, his unfinished life's work, the one that got him in trouble, he starts publishing, you know, excerpts of this novel that took him 30 years to write and not finish about his life in these social circles that pissed everybody off. Mm-hmm. To me, that's ripe for the miniseries treatment or a Broadway musical or whatever, because, you know, as much as I think he... um flourish certain things. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think a lot of those people are no longer with us. And I think we can now look back at people like, you know, Jackie Kennedy and people like um, Marilyn Monroe and things like that. And I think we can we can digest comments about them that are separate from what the perfect public persona was. You know what I mean? Well, and I also think, I mean, this may be unpopular, but I think that showing all sides of someone is being true to their memory. Right. Only celebrating a carefully curated image is does them a disservice. 
because right. they are more than that. Well, he's kind and of I, like the OG Gossip Girl, yeah? Yeah, I would like to think that he's a little more straightforward sure. than that and less well, he catty. he didn't hide it. He didn't hide it. <laughs> I mean, he definitely published it out, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I always I keep coming back to the same phrase. He was everything was ahead of its time. Yeah, I think so. I think that I think there's a lot more Capote that we can we can mine for some amazing things, especially in the land of musical theater. All right, kids. Well, that's it. That was our three card Capote. I thought I did the puns on this show. You do. You still get to do one. <laughs> you still get to do one. I don't even know if that makes sense. But thank you so much for listening to, I think, probably their most ambitious episode to date. I am, I am a fan of the ambitious episode. You know me. Go big or go home. I mean, do you think we'll ever do three shows in an episode again? <laughs> Maybe. It was a lot of work, this one. Well, you know, let's do four next time. I vote yes to that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in once again to my favorite flop. Now, if you haven't gone and listened to our interview with the star from Intermission, you gotta. It's on our YouTube channel. It's on the Facebook. It's too long to be on the Instagram, but go check them out. Um, Julia is a dream and I didn't freak her out with my crazy fan You did side. not. She stayed and so, talked to you after we finished. She stayed and talked to me, guys. Can we just have Julia Murney on every, for every show we do? Yeah, didn't we agree to that? She's just going to show up with a glass of wine and be like, and that's why I flopped. And it's going to be great. Oh my God, um, I'm obsessed. <laughs> Uh, but please go check it out. Go check out our our episodes from Act One. I met uh, one of our one of our listeners last night, which was a real treat and surprise. Um, and they were like, "I skip around, so it's fun to go back and find episodes I haven't listened to." So, so go good. do that. Go check it out. You know, um, we uh, we keep it fresh here at My Favorite Flop. You know, find out why everyone in Lebanon is obsessed with us because we're That's still right. charting there to this very day, which is so bizarre. Um, also, we have a couple of crossover episodes that have come out with But A Song podcast, all about Zoe's in- extraordinary playlist. Yes, it's a a movie that someone else did. Right. Um, But that was so fun. We did two episodes with Johnny, which is awesome. And then we were on Breaking the Curtain uh, with our friends um, Chrissy and Jocelyn uh, to talk all about Big Fish, which was so much fun. Yeah, so go check those things out. Don't forget to follow us on socials on all of them at My Favorite Flop and merch. Yeah, we got merch. I mean, Christina's wearing it right now. You can't see it, but she is wearing our exclusive Floppaholic line, which is what you should wear when you go out to meet friends so that everyone knows that you're not only a fan of this podcast, but of the material that we cover and we love to cover. And speaking of covering shows, Christina, we should probably give them the clue for the next episode, right? Yes. Bobby, what's the clue for the next episode? All right. The clue for episode 16 is this. This show managed to lose $12 million of a $10 million investment. That is correct. They lost more money than it cost to produce. (laughs) I'm just going to give another little one. I think this is going to be a big flop, don't you think? I do. It's huge. 
It's going to be huge. Gigantic. Uh-huh. For all sure. Right. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, like, us, like we said, go back and listen. Find us on socials. And Christina, do you have any parting words for our listeners today? Why is Kathy Rigby so tired? Because she never lands. But um, Yes! Okay. Bye. Bye.